0: You ever been um, in one of those situations where uh, either somebody made a joke or somebody insulted you or something, just somebody threw a comment at you off the cuff, and for whatever reason, because normally in those situations, if you're anything like me, it's like two days later, and I'm like, ah, that's what I should have said, jerk store, that was the comeback. Uh, But in, in this particular moment, like, you just had right at the tip of your tongue the exact perfect comeback or the exact perfect response um for what was said to you my my dad's dad my opa was the kind of person whose wit was so sharp he he english was not his first language Uh, he kind of always fumbled around with english and was still one of the funniest guys i've ever met in my life i remember and, and he always knew exactly what to say i was at his house once and he offered me a cup of coffee michael Do you want a cup of coffee?" I said, Opa, I'd love a cup of coffee. He brings me a cup of coffee, and he says, Michael, you want cream in it? And I said, now Opa, come on. I said, if you had had, uh, offered me a glass of water, would I put cream in it? He said, no. I said, if you had offered me a, a glass of orange juice, would I put cream in it? He said, no. I said, if you offered me a glass of ginger ale, would I put cream in it? He said, no. I said, why do you think that you offer me a cup of coffee, I'm going to put cream in it? He never even blinked, didn't bat an eyelash. He looked at me and he said, because those other drinks, you don't cook them. <laughs> just like that. Like just, okay, pass the cream. You're right. I got it. <laughs> but it's just those moments, right, where you just have the exact perfect response. Well, I'm going to tell you, we're turning back this morning to the story of Jesus In Matthew chapter 22, if you have a Bible or Bible app, you can turn there. And we've seen Jesus in lots of situations over the time that we've been studying his life story. We've seen him in private. We've seen him in public. We've seen him teaching. We've seen him healing. We've seen him calming storms. We've seen him doing miracles. We've seen him doing all sorts of stuff. And what we're going to look at in this series, we're just going to watch Jesus as a debater. Because three times in the first three weeks of this series somebody's coming at Jesus with a challenge. And three times Jesus has to respond on the spot in a way that addresses the person's concern and points their eyes back to where it's supposed to be. Um, As we join the story again, Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem. This is still the beginning of the last week of his life. He's there to celebrate the Passover festival. And by the end of this week, he's going to be dead on the cross. And uh, he has been over the last couple of series. What we've been looking at is Jesus challenging and critiquing the kind of religious leadership that has been provided Israel by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's been questioning their leadership, and now in the text that we're going to look at in this series, it's their turn to question Jesus. And so, in Matthew twenty-two verse fifteen, it says this: And the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Now, at first blush, if you uh, don't know first century culture that well, you may not realize what a hot potato political question Jesus has just been thrown. The, the poll tax was a tax that was introduced by the Roman government who was occupying Israel at the time when Jesus was in infancy at about 6 uh, CE or A.D., The Roman Empire took over the province of Judea and began to govern it directly. All the other provinces in Israel were governed by a member of the Herod family who was a king of the Jews in that particular part of the country. But Judea, where the temple was, they didn't have a Herod. They were governed directly by a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate. And, uh, and when they transferred the leadership from uh, Herod, King Herod over to Pontius Pilate, uh, they imposed this poll tax. In fact, they took a census of all the people who lived in Israel, and all of the people from that time forward got charged the poll tax. All Every adult Jew in Israel got charged the poll tax. Now, it wasn't a huge amount of money, on the one hand, it was, it was about a denarius, it was about a day's wage for a common labor. So you try and translate that into 21st century terms. Uh, if you're earning minimum wage, uh, maybe less than a hundred bucks. Now, that being said, it's not about the money. But if you're earning minimum wage, a hundred bucks is a lot of money. But it really wasn't about the money. Um, it was an annual reminder That the Jews were slaves in their own homeland. That they were living in subjection to a Roman Empire. They were living under Roman martial law that was being imposed by occupying Roman forces. It was a reminder that God had not yet answered their prayer to send a Messiah who would be the king of the Jews who would sit on the throne in Jerusalem and who would raise up an army in rebellion against Rome and drive them out of the city and reclaim the city of Israel for God. The question was a thorny one because there were two strong opinions about whether or not this tax should get paid. The Pharisees, they believed that the tax shouldn't get paid. That Rome was the enemy of God and anyone who paid the tax was partnering with God's enemy against God and a large part of the population, especially the poor part of the population, agreed. But the Herodians, on the other hand, was a group of people who actually supported the poll tax. It seems that they as a group were interested in having King Herod reinstated as the ruler over the province of Judea. And all of the Herods, by the way, in all the different provinces, they were all puppet kings. They all answered to Caesar in Rome. It was all a partnership with the Roman government. So they wanted a Herod back on the throne uh, in Jerusalem, in Israel, or in, in Judea, And they believe that the poll tax should get paid as a part of the partnership with the Roman government. And so Jesus is really in a bind. Because he's approached by the Pharisees and the Herodians and asked the question, should we pay the tax or not? And this is a lose-lose situation for Jesus. If he says, no, I don't think we should pay the tax. Well, then the Herodians go and report him to the Romans and say, hey, this guy's guilty of treason. And he gets arrested and probably crucified. If he says, no, absolutely, we should pay the tax, then the Pharisees denounce him publicly in front of the masses of people, and he destroys his public career. They're trying to coax Jesus into giving an answer that will destroy him. Actually, for the last 10 chapters in the book of Matthew, the Pharisees have been trying to destroy him. And this is a trap that they've set. Krista and I are currently fighting rats in our garage and in our basement. I've set traps all over the house. I've bathed them all with peanut butter and I'm catching absolutely nothing. But this is what they've done. They've set the trap and they've put this question in there, just dangling there. And they're waiting for Jesus just to stumble his way into the trap and bam, they're going to destroy him at last. That's why they set up the question the way they do, right? The Pharisees don't come. They send their disciples because they know if the Pharisees are standing there, Jesus is going to be more cautious with his answer because he knows they're his opponents. So they send the disciples hoping Jesus doesn't recognize them. And then they butter them up. You know, Jesus, you're, you have such integrity. Everything you say is true. You always speak what it is you feel. You're not afraid of anybody's opinion, Caesar's opinion, or the religious leader's opinion, or the crowd's opinion. You just always say exactly what's on your mind. So what do you think? Do you pay the poll tax or not? And Jesus, he sees right through their plan. Verse 18, he says, But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. they brought him, a denarius. Jesus sees right through them. And he said, listen, you guys are hypocrites. Who, he says, okay, who's got, who's got a coin that you use to pay the tax? Now, um, you probably have never seen one of these coins. I'll show you this coin. It's a pretty standard coin. Put it up on the screen. Um, on the one side of the coin, it's got a picture of Caesar Tiberius. Right, And the inscription around the uh, coin says Tiberius the son of the divine emperor Augustus. On the other side of the coin, you have a picture of Lady Peace sitting in judgment over the empire and the inscription says, High Priest, Pontifex Maximus. The Jews hated this coin. Actually, they believed that carrying this coin, using this coin was actually a violation of the Ten Commandments. The first commandment said, you should have no gods before me. No other gods beside me. Well, this coin says clearly on it, the divine emperor Augustus. Even on the coin, Tiberius calls himself the son of God. Secondly, the second commandment says, you shall make no idols. Well, this is a graven image of somebody who claims to be a god. This coin is an idol. The Jews hated this coin. They wouldn't carry it. In fact, uh, they made the Romans allow them to mint their own copper coin to use in, in daily transactions. So they specifically didn't have to carry this coin because it was so detestable to them. So now you see the genius of Jesus, right? He says, you guys are such hypocrites. Uh, who has a coin? Because I, I don't have one. And the Pharisees are like, oh, I got one. Yeah, it's right here. And, he, and Jesus takes it, it's a, he's exposing their hypocrisy, right? You guys, you're saying that this is all about, you know, you're trying to trap me and demonstrate that I'm not committed to God because I don't obey the law, because I'm going to whatever about the poll tax. You guys are carrying around these coins in the temple, no less. You guys are hypocrites. You're just trying to trap me. But then he says this. He says, he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Well, Caesar's, they replied. And he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Jesus doesn't answer a question. He says, So whose image is this? Whose whose name is inscribed on? they said, Well, it's Caesar Tiberius. Right. He says, So... He said, let's treat this very simply. He said, how about we treat this coin like you would treat a sweatshirt you find in the lost and found at school? Whoever's name is on it, they probably own it. Give it back to them. Right? Like, you're, let's say you're walking down the sidewalk and you find uh, a driver's license sitting on the sidewalk and you pick it up. And it's like, oh, whose picture is this? Oh, that's Michael Kroos. Oh, well, whose name is on it? Oh, it's Michael Kroos. I wonder whose license this is this? Well, it's probably Michael Kroos. Why don't you go give it back to him? Jesus says, look, it's got his name, it's got his image. If Caesar wants money, why don't you just give him back his money? What? He says, because then he pushes the conversation to another level. He says, then why don't you, if you're going to do that, give to Caesar what is Caesar's then why don't you give to God what is God's? What does that mean? What do we do with this? Story because there aren't too many of us who are debating the religious rightness of paying taxes, he says at the beginning of March. Um, right, like this isn't it's not really a 21st century question, except when you tease up the, the actual issue away from what is being asked of Jesus. The question that Jesus is being asked is the question about how you live your political life as a person of faith. That's really the question. That's being explored. And it's actually not a question that I think we think enough about in our culture. I mean, ironically, Jeff actually preached on this in November. So if you want to go back and review that starting point message, you can. But but this is something, we live generally, day to day, we live our life in a culture that believes in the separation of church and state. so that I have my life of faith over here and then I live my life in society over here. I live my political views over here and really these two things don't ever really intersect. I'm a member of my church and I'm a member of this political party and... Those two things don't really have a lot to do with each other. And that's how we live until those moments when our faith view and our political view seem to come into tension with each other. We're we're watching this being lived out in the United States right now. It happens in Canada too, but it's just so uh, up front right now in the United States. Where you have a president who seems to have trouble with the truth. Who appears to be a racist and a misogynist who brags about sexually assaulting women who has appeared on the cover of playboy and in a pornographic film and white evangelical christians love him and people on the progressive side the liberal side other christians they're like how can you how can you call yourself a christian and support this guy that seems to stand for the exact opposite of everything that jesus stood for and then how do the conservatives respond they said well who are you going to vote for crooked hillary she's a liar She's corrupt, she peddles influence, she kills babies, she wants to marry gays. If you have a, a conservative Christian viewpoint, you look at that and say, how can you vote for her? Right? I, I remember listening to Christian Radio once, and the radio host said, I defy anybody to call into my program and explain to me how you can be a Christian and vote for Barack Obama at the same time. You can't do it. Of course you can do it. Right, But we are so accustomed to keeping our faith out of our political life that we don't make political decisions based on faith. And so the question that sits at the root of this whole debate is how do you live your life in society politically as a person of faith? And Jeff dealt with this question in November, so I'm only going to give a few minutes to it. But when I think about how I think about faith and politics, my poster ch- verse is actually Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. It says this. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, that doesn't sound like a verse about politics, but it is. That word conduct yourself in the Greek is actually the word my. We get our word politics from it. And basically what the word means is behave in a way that is appropriate As a citizen of the community to which you belong. That's what the word means. Behave appropriately as a citizen to which you belong. Uh, Paul is writing to the Christians in the city of Philippi. Philippi was a a city that was founded by Caesar Augustus. uh, On the far reaches of the Roman Empire at the time. In the province of Macedonia. And he founded this city and then populated it entirely with Roman citizens. And he said, listen, I'm going to send you to live over there. There's no room in Rome for you to live here. So you go and you live over there. But when you go and live in Macedonia, remember, you are not Macedonians. You're Romans. So when you go and live there, don't uh, take their language, don't adopt their culture, their customs, none of those things. That is, I want you to go to Macedonia and live like Romans. I want you to behave appropriately, considering that you are a citizen of the empire of Rome. So when in Macedonia, do as the Romans do. Go and live there, but behave like someone who belongs here. And so this is what they do. Now, Paul is writing this letter to the Christians who live in the city of Philippi. And he's saying the same thing to them. I know you live in the city of Philippi, in a Roman city. But remember, you're not fundamentally Roman. You're fundamentally Christian. That your citizenship, he says in chapter 3 of Philippians, your citizenship is in heaven. You're not Roman citizens. I mean, you are, but you're not fundamentally Roman citizens. You're fundamentally kingdom citizens. So live right where you are as those who are behaving appropriately for your citizenship, which is a part of the kingdom of God. What Paul would want to say to us is this. You're not Canadian. You're citizens of the kingdom of God. Your ruler is not Justin Trudeau, it's Jesus Christ. Your motto is not peace, order, and good government. Your motto is the gospel. Your goal is not to grow the economy. Your goal is to grow the love of God in your community. Your trust is not in military spending and border control. Your trust is in the providential protection of God Behave, conduct yourselves in a way that is worthy, that is suited to the fact that you are citizens of the kingdom, not citizens of the community in which you live. Now, does that mean we withdraw from public life like we just don't engage in any level? Not at all. Jeremiah chapter 29, listen to this. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those that I carried from exile in Jerusalem to Babylon, to people who are from here but who are living there, right? Who are from the holy city but who are living somewhere else. This is what he says. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters and find wives for your sons and give your daughters away in marriage, Also, he says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. God says, listen, you are going to be from here, from the Holy Land. You're going to be my people, but you're not going to be living here. You're going to be living way over there, somewhere else. Here's how I want you to behave. I want you to participate in the life of the community where you find yourself. Go buy a house. Get a job. Plant a garden, eat the food, get married, have kids, marry them off. Do whatever you can to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. The word peace in Hebrew is the word shalom. It means abundance, fullness, wholeness, togetherness. Help piece the city together again. Participate for human flourishing in the life of the city right where you are. So if you're in from St. Catharines. Be a part of the Compassionate City Initiative, right? Make your city the most God-like kind of city you can possibly imagine. If you're in Welland or Vineland, do that in the ways that you, we do it there. Do it through our anchor causes. Participate in the well-being of your community. But remember, you're there as an ambassador, as a citizen from somewhere else right? Think about an ambassador. They live here in Canada. They buy a house, they grocery shop, they send their kids to school, they get married, they have a job. They participate in the life rhythm of Canada knowing they're not really Canadian, that their allegiance is somewhere else. And their goal is to carry the agenda from the place of their citizenship and to try and implement it right where they are as best they can. That's what it means to live politically as a person of faith and i think too few of us remember that on social media this is the first sunday of lent i'll tell you what i gave up for lent i gave up getting political news honestly that's exactly what i gave up i've over the last year found myself too engrossed too overwhelmed by the political news of what's going on all across the western hemisphere and it can be anxiety inducing and it can be overwhelming and it Uh, for me it's just been addicting and whatever and so for lent which is about fasting prayer and serving the poor i'm fasting from political news and every time i feel the impulse to go online and find out you know what's happening in our world i've committed that i'm going to pray for our world instead that god's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven i need to live as a person of faith and stop stop getting so consumed by my politics but jesus says this is not Jesus says, even this conversation is distracting from the real thing. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, sure. Give to God what is God's. That's what life is about. What does that mean? Give to God what is God's. Well, think about this whole Caesar conversation. What were they going to give to Caesar? The coin, why? Because it had his image and his name on it. Whatever has the image and the name, that's who it belongs to. Give it back. Well, what has God's image on it? It says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. You are the image of God. You have God's image on you. What is God's name on it? Second Chronicles chapter 7, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. You have God's name on you. You have his image on you and you have his name on you. God says, if what Caesar wants is money, fine, give him the money, it belongs to him anyway. What God wants, Jesus says, is you. You have God's image on you. You have God's name on you. You, your life, fundamentally belongs to God. And he wants you to give yourself to him. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, think about what it means to be in the image of God. The Bible doesn't totally explain it with clarity. And so theologians have their own theories. And uh, I think there's merit to thinking about Each of the theories. Some theologians say the image of God is something um, that has to do with structurally how our humanity, the ways in which we're more like God and less like our dog, right? Consciousness, our conscience, reason, our ability to communicate clearly in language, um, our freedom, just our soul. We have a soul. We have the capacity to live in a relationship with God. That's what makes us in the image of God. Other people say, no, it's our relationality. We're created in the image of God, and the God who created us is a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have lived in loving community with each other for all of eternity. That the image of God in you is fundamentally connected to your ability to embed yourself in loving community with others. Others say, no, it has to do with our ethical life. The New Testament says that Jesus is the image of God. And he's compassionate and kind and humble and gentle and patient and forgiving and loving. And in as much as our lives, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as much as our lives overflow with these things, we're living in the image of God. There are other people who say, no, it has to do with what we do in the world. Right? When it says God created them in his image, it immediately says that he invited them to rule, to have dominion over creation to exercise God's authority. See, in the ancient world, the phrase image of God was used in every other culture but Israel to talk about the king and the priest. Those were the people who created the image of God, those who were elevated in dignity and status, who radiated divinity into the world, and who were responsible to see that God's will got done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what it meant to be in the image of God. The Bible is the most radical document when it comes to humanism. The Bible is the most radical document in the ancient world because the Bible says, no, it's not the king and the priest, it's all of you, it's everybody. It's all of humanity that is elevated in dignity, that radiates divinity, and that is responsible under God's authority to be the implementer of God's will on earth as it is in heaven. That's what it means to be in the image. And I think it's all of it. I, if I would just define the image of God, I would say it's the capacity to live in loving relationship with God and loving relationship with each other that forms us into the character of God so that we can use every human capacity that we have to make this world a little bit more the way God would want it to be. Think about what that means. That's your identity. That's who you are. You are not your past. You are not where you come from. You are not the mistakes that were made generations before. You're not your heritage. You're not your demographic. You are not your age. You are not your ethnicity. You're not your socioeconomic status. You're not your marital status. You're not your educational status. You are not your mistakes. You're not all your screw-ups, and you're not all your blow-ups, and you're not your successes. You're not all your achievements, and you're not all your accolades, your income, or your position. What you are is a child who reflects the goodness and beauty of your heavenly parent. Who has the capacity to be a spitting image of the one who created you. Who has the capacity within you to be like the one who gave you life. And God says, what I want from you is that life. I want what every parent wants from a child. I want you to love me. I want you to let me love you. I want you to trust me. I want you to allow me to guide you. I want you to allow me to take care of you. I want you to obey me. I want you to become the person that I created you to be. What God wants from you is you. You are made in his image. You are inscribed with his name. Give to God what is God's. Which is you, we let ourselves get sidetracked by all these dumb conversations about politics and all. This is not the foundation of life. This is not where life happens. Life happens in as much as we give ourselves back to God. It means giving ourselves to God. It means giving ourselves to each other. The Bible says you cannot be a human being except in loving human community with other human beings. In the late 18th century, There was a couple in France who abandoned their kids in their kid, their one son, in the woods to die. French, (laughs) hey. My apologies, Alen, wherever you are. Um, They abandoned their kid in the woods to die, except the kid didn't die. Some folks found him years later living more like an animal than a human being, naked, foraging for berries and nuts. He had lost the capacity to speak. He could only grunt. And in fact, as they re-socialized him back into society, he never again regained the capacity to speak, that fundamental human capacity. Not that that's what makes you human, but it's a part of being human. And that's what happens to you and to me when we disconnect ourselves, when we distance ourselves from loving human community. We become less of a human being. It's what happens to other people when you disconnect yourself from their loving human community. God says, give to God what is God's. Give yourself, your life back to him. Give yourself and your life to each other and give yourself and your life to participating in what God is doing in the world. The early chapters of Genesis say that being in the image of God is about cultivating and nurturing creation, caring for the world that God has put us in charge of, has invited us to steward. The chapter, early chapters in Genesis say that work is a part of that. Your job is a gift that you give to God. It's a gift that you give to the people around you. It's a gift that you give to the world. If your job can't be a gift in that way, then maybe you need to start thinking about a new job. It's in the way we do agriculture, the way we care for the earth. It's in the way that we garden and care to grow vegetables. It's in the way in flowers. It's in the way that we care for animals. It's in the way that we do science. and the way that we do technology. It's in the way that we do art. For God's sake, it's in the way that we do art. Paint in the image of God. Make music in the image of God. Write poetry and literature in the image of God. Do whatever and however God has built you as a human being. Take what God has given you and give it back back to him in loving relationship to him embedded in loving community with each other and offering to God and to the world whatever God has given you in order to contribute to the, God's kingdom coming and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what God wants from you. So Can a person be a Christian and vote for the conservatives or liberal or NDP or green or the block, I suppose? Maybe. Who cares? God has created you in his image. He has made you someone with the capacity to love him and the people around you and to love this world with everything he's created you to be. Honestly, God has created you to do what Jesus did. To show up in the world, radiate divinity, fill the place with love, and pour yourself out. Give up everything you have. Give away everything God has given you in order to see the love of God take root in our world. And that's what we're celebrating this morning in all three of our locations as we come to the communion table. Recognizing that Jesus is the one that we celebrate. Jesus came, showed us what God is like, and then gave up his life, was raised from the dead so that we could become people who are realizing in ever deeper ways the image of God in us so that we can give ourselves away to God, to each other, and to the world in love. And we'll never be able to do it without Jesus. And so as the band comes to the stage, as your host comes to guide you in the logistics of how we're going to do this in your particular location, come to the communion table today. This is, you represents the body and the blood of Jesus. This represents everything Jesus gave of, out of the love of God for you so that you could be filled with the love of God and give everything that you have for this world that God loves. That's what it looks like to give to God what is God's. Let's come to the table together.